Hi, this is Lynette Nylander, host of NTS Radio's new podcast, Sounds and Style. Each week, I'll be chatting with some of culture's most influential figures, exploring how music and style links what we wear with who we are. Expect deep cuts into musical genres and fashion subcultures as my guests and I look at how the music they love has informed the work they make today. This season, I've been chatting with Lily Allen, Martine Rose, Mel Ottenberg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Don't Assume. I'm Zakia, and in this podcast, I'll be talking to artists and innovators who have defied conventions and pushed boundaries through their music. Later, once I had, in the 1950s, when I had met Alan Lomax and Peter Kennedy, who was another person who recorded um, traditional songs in the, you know from the source then when I heard those field recordings I knew that was the way to sing them as straightforwardly as those people did you know no airs no graces no trying to sell the song to you they just sing the song to you not at you today I'm speaking to one of England's most beloved folk singers Shirley Collins in her front room in Lewis For over 60 years, Shirley has been at the forefront of the English folk scene, digging out centuries-old songs from the archives and breathing new life into the words of the rural working classes. Her plain, unaffected style of singing and her dedication to these age-old songs has seen her collaborate with musicians as diverse as Current 93 and Davy Graham. From travelling through the American South with the field recordist Alan Lomax in the 1950s to her fresh and compassionate take on Englishness both today and in times past, Shirley is no ordinary octogenarian. She is the embodiment of Don't Assume and I'm really, really excited to hear her story. So, Shirley, you've talked about your early life and sort of growing up in a, in a house where folk music was being sung. It was sort of in the atmosphere. Would you say that you came from a lineage of, of folk singers? No, not really. Um, the only reason that I heard the singing was that during the war, my sister and I slept in an air raid shelter, which was just an iron table with mesh sides, and Granny and Grandad would sing to us to keep us you know, sort of feeling secure during the air raids um, and Grandad sang what I later learned were folk songs Granny sang rather miserable improving Edwardian ballads you know <laughs> <laughs> everybody dies um, saving a rich girl or something silly like that you know the, the uh, sensibilities of, of Edwardian England um, so the, it wasn't a big folk background it's just that Grandad sang one or two songs and because we loved him and it was wonderful to hear him singing you know the, the songs stay with me and in fact one of them the Bonnie Labouring Boy which is one of the first songs Grandad sang and it was the very first song that I recorded for Alan Lomax in 1958 um, is on the new album as well a revisited Bonnie Labouring Boy and it's just lovely to hear it again Wow so a song from your childhood that's made its way back, all back around All the way back yeah all the way around again when was it that you sort of first realised that you wanted to sing this this folk music? I guess it was because um, every Sunday we had dinner, and dinner in those days was one o'clock. 
and we'd switch on the wireless, <laughs> the radio, and listen to family favourites. And a great many of the songs that were chosen were pieces by Vaughan Williams, like Greensleeves was a big favourite. Um, and the Englishness of that sort of stayed with me. And occasionally um, on the the one folk programme the BBC had, and it still only has one folk programme even nowadays, um, was called As I Roved Out, and they had some songs that were sung by the people who had sung them to the collectors and other songs that those songs had been arranged uh, for tenors and, and sopranos to sing to pianos. And they were dreadful. And I knew even at the age of 10, 11 or 12 that that wasn't the way to do it, that the natural voices were, were far better, far more interesting and not hideous. So that was that was the folk background, really. It wasn't as if the family sang and sang for you know generations past, like the Copper family of Rottingdean, who have been going for 400 years in the same style. Um, but the the background really was more literature, I think, and art, because I had two uncles who were painters. Uncle Fred, who was a gas meter reader by day and a writer at night, and he's the man who wrote the um, biography of Robert Tressel, the ragged trousered philanthropist, and wrote a couple of no novels that were published as well. So... And they were all political as well, which was a that was a drag for a sort of twelve-year-old. And Mum did send us down to Hastings Centre to send the daily work of my sister and me on the street, and it was so embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, really embarrassing. If your school chums spotted you, you know, Hastings wasn't the place for the daily work. <laughs> was there a moment that that you sort of? Had a sort of, was there a eureka moment for you where you sort of knew that you wanted to be to be a singer? Because in in a sense that you know, having not come from that lineage, there must have been something within you that just sort of innately drawn towards towards this music. Well, as the more I heard on the radio of the field recordings that people like Bob Copper had made in Sussex, and those voices just sounded so good to me that I finally decided I was going to be a folk singer. But I also wanted to be a folk singer because I had seen an American film called Nightclub Girl, where a girl from Tennessee was taken to New York to sing her folk songs in the nightclub. And I thought, oh, that'll do for me. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to be a folk singer. So what I did, I wrote to the BBC and let them know. And the great good fortune was, though, that somebody passed my letter to Bob Copper. And one day when he was collecting um, songs from the fishermen in the old town at Hastings, there was a knock on the door and there was Bob. And we invited him in and then completely ruined anything because Dolly and I decided to impress him with a 16-verse long Scottish ballad, <laughs> which we sang in Scots accents as well. But luckily Bob had teenage kids of his own at that point, so he sort of realised that, um, you know, something else was going on. But it was the start of a friendship with Bob, which I kept all my life. So it, it was at that point, I think, being silly enough to write to the BBC, being silly enough to want to sing in a nightclub in New York, um, and then realising with Bob that the songs from home, the songs even from your own county or your own southern um, English songs were the way to go 
But at that point, I hadn't heard any many other field recordings apart from the ones that were played on the radio. And so I had to go to London to sort of research in Cecil Sharp House, the headquarters of the English Folk Song and Dance Society, and just look through books. And I would just pour, you know, go and pour my way through them. And if I came across a set of words that I liked, I'd write them down. I'd photocopy the music, because I couldn't read music, and took it home to Dolly to play on the piano. And if I liked the melody, then I'd learn the song. And that was the start of it. And I learned a great many songs that way. But later, once I had, in the 1950s, when I had met Alan Lomax and Peter Kennedy, who was another person who recorded uh, traditional songs in the, you know from the source, then when I heard those field recordings, I knew that was the way to sing them as straightforwardly as those people did. You know, no airs, no graces, no trying to sell the song to you. They just sing the song to you, not at you. You know, which is um, what I've always tried to do. Just just present the song to people without um, bellowing at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because you, you've you've talked about some of these old folk songs as being kind of vessels almost for communicating with previous generations and with, with mm. ancestors. Um, tell me about that and why it's important to you and, and perhaps also why removing yourself is, is kind of important in that connection. Well, some of the songs go back so far. Um, I mean, I always loved history, even as a child. In fact, I, my great ambition as about an eight-year-old was to go back to Elizabethan England, you know, which would have been absolute hell, wouldn't it? Can you imagine <laughs> how difficult life would be? Only if you took a box of aspirin with you, you know, you could sort of make it through. But um, once I'd heard these singers and knowing the age of some of the songs, I... I I think I felt a huge responsibility towards the songs and to give them as much respect as possible, but not to sort of make them dull in that way. It was it was just a feeling that you had to honour the songs. And, uh, I mean, that stayed with me for life, really. And uh, what I... I know this sounds sort of... Oh, what does it sound? It sounds a bit soppy in a way, but I've often felt that the singers are behind me singing. You know, when I sing, I can feel the singers behind me. I feel they're sort of saying, yeah, thanks, you know, thanks for doing it this way, our way. Um, I don't think you can sell a folk song, you know, you just sing it. And and it's the age of them that, you know... I mean, for instance, on the first album for Domino, we had one that went back to the 16th century when an earthquake toppled part of Old St Paul's Cathedral in London, can you believe? And one of the um, priests at the time wrote the song um, saying that it was God's punishment, that God was punishing people for being so wayward or whatever they were being um, and that they should stop and think about God and the future and death and whatnot and a uh, marvellous song but uh, that's the oldest song we I ever sang I think I mean it's, I always think about the fact that 
in in this country we don't really think about ourselves necessarily as having ancestors it's not really part of the culture when you compare it to other parts of the world but <sighs> but what you're talking about and these songs are sort of a direct a direct connection and it's so important to sort of be connected to that history so that we don't repeat the mistakes of those who've gone before us well yes that's true um Although the mistakes that they made in, in many ways were, were forced on them, you know, they weren't mistakes they wanted to make. Like, for instance, I mean, in the 18th and 19th centuries, quite a huge part of the male population was press-ganged on the coastal towns, just, just stolen away at night or given the king's shilling, and if they took the shilling, they were... They'd agree to go on board. And so hundreds and hundreds of them were taken to serve in the armies and on the navies. And, you know, there was an almost inexhaustible supply needed. And a great many songs reflect this. And I think it's quite important that people might remember that life wasn't safe and that you could be stolen away. That aspect of, of many of the songs sort of stuck with me because, I mean, they make beautiful songs, but out of... Tragic circumstances. And I guess, they, yeah, they offer an alternative history. Well, they do, a history that you haven't heard. You know, you, people just don't know about. We, it's all in terms of kings and king, queens and the nobility, but in fact, of course, it's not. You know, it's far more about the ordinary people. So then do you think that folk music or English folk music is sort of inherently political? No, I th no, I don't. Um, I mean, that's just one aspect of it that that you discover the more you delve into the songs. Um, a great many love songs, some comic songs, some you know about. I mean, about all sorts of things, really, like sea battles and land battles. They sang about everything, but I don't think. I'm, I'm not sure if it was, I mean, you know, some of the people sang songs about Napoleon, for instance, some pro-Napoleon, some anti-Napoleon, you know. Um, I sort of rather like Napoleon myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I ever sang any songs about him because they were so long. <laughs> yeah, it's true. A lot, a lot of spurned lovers as well as uh, stories of uh, wrongs done by the, the ruling classes. Um so I'd like to know a bit more about Folk Roots, New Roots, because that was it's one of my favourite albums of all time. And it's an album that I grew up with because my dad um, absolutely loved it. And he and some of his friends um, used to cover songs from that record. So I've had your voice <laughs> swirling around, <laughs> swirling around my sort of my inner landscape for a very, very, very long time. Um, and... Yeah, I'm curious to know how did that album come about and what was it like working with Davy Graham? Because that album was sort of a departure from perhaps some more of the traditional renditions that you'd been working on before that. Yes, it was a complete, a complete turnover, really. Um, my then husband, Austin John Marshall, was crazy about jazz um, and used to go to quite a few jazz clubs. And there he heard Davy for the first time and... He thought it would be a good idea if I tried working with Davy with you know, Davy's amazing guitar arrangements, and I I said yes, you know, because it seemed like a brilliant idea. And in fact, it was it was great working with him in many ways, and his arrangements were so 
so strong, you know, that it made my singing better as well. It was, it was. Uh, I mean, you had to sort of step up a bit to to sing with Davy. <laughs> you know. Um, so we made that. We made the album, and I, I do remember it quite clearly. And I've still got a photograph of that session. It was a huge studio. Um, in the EMI building, I reckon it must have been. And I'm a sort of little pinpoint figure at one end of a vast studio perched on a stool and Davy at the other end. And I think, how could we possibly have recorded that distant? Where nowadays, you know, you just want to be sort of close to the people you're working with. Um, but anyway, I mean, we, we obviously overcame that and, and the strength of Davy's accompaniments, just wonderful to sing against, you know, it just really sort of charged you with energy and and strength. And but he was difficult in many ways. I mean, he was absolutely charming. His manners were impeccable. He was always kind. But it, I always felt I was a bit diminished in his company because he seemed to be so incredibly well-read, but only well-read in very sort of esoteric stuff. And he'd always have something in his top pocket, I remember, that he'd pull out once in a while and sort of look at and then put back. And um, I knew it couldn't last because, you know, he he took drugs as well. And, of course, I was, you know, utterly against anything like that. Um but the time we were together and the time we, we had two or three concerts together. And, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have missed the experience for anything. And I, I liked him so much. He was just such a gentle person, except when he wasn't, you know. So um, you never quite knew what Davey you were going to, to bump into. But it was it was a pleasure making the album and I'm jolly glad I did it. And it's still influencing people today. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say, because, you know, that, that album is kind of heralded or held up as a kind of an, a high, an incredibly influential record because it was one of the first to really fuse these sort mm. of different tr- traditional musics from around the world, you know, mixing this very specific uh, English folk tradition with, as you say, jazz, but also kind of Eastern North sounds. North African yes. Did you feel that there was a sort of, Connection. You know, how did it feel for you bringing those sort of two worlds together? Did you feel that there was a sort of easy connection between the, these very distinct musical traditions? Well, what seemed extraordinary to me that nothing seemed out of place, nothing seemed wrong, and his interpretation of of both sorts of music was just so perfect because he had lived abroad as well and studied the music and played the music, but he also knew the music of of Great Britain as well. And what can I say? You know, it was extraordinary to be with him and to hear all this music sort of pouring out of him all the time, these wonderful fingers. <laughs> very nimble, very nimble fingers. Yeah, oh, that's interesting, yes. Did you say that for any reason? No, no. <laughs> ah, because the record wasn't light. By people like you and McCall, you know, it was it was shunned and it was scorned. It was as if we'd sort of committed some heresy. And they wrote a poem against me in it. And one of the two lines was, Davis' nimble fingers carry her along. The Lady Baden-Powell of English song. That's the bloody boy scouts. I mean, 
nothing to do with me. I'm not... I'm never... I'm a socialist. I'm not, I'm not the Boy Scout's wife. Um, but there's this whole long poem. It was really very, very nasty. But mm. I, when you used those words, I thought perhaps you'd read it. No. No, it just, just came through. But I, want, I, I did want to ask you about that. You know, these songs really were the songs of working people. And, and when you listen to these old field recordings, you really get a sense mm. of that. And it's quite a way off from the sort of the Nick Drakes and the Pentangles and that, which is a lot of what a lot of people associate with yeah, English folk. Yeah, I find folk. it quite flimsy, you mm. see. I mean, some of it's very pretty, but flimsy and it doesn't sort of... doesn't touch me at all because it doesn't get back far enough. It doesn't sort of recognise or keep something in there of the original spirit, which, you know, is, I think is so essential. It just moves it all away and... Um, it just makes it sort of, as I say, flimsy is the word I... Well, it doesn't honour that, that, it doesn't honour no, the, the history. Still, it doesn't recognise it, does it? But I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you've talked about that sort of folk revival movement in the 60s as being very middle class and also misogynistic, you know, what you're saying about you and McCall. Um, so how were you treated as a woman, you know, with working class roots? And how did you feel about the fact that this music was being appropriated by a very different type of people to those who originally, um, you know, mm. would have had the song? It's interesting. I must, yes, I suppose I was annoyed and baffled in many ways as to why they were so successful um, because, you know, they were at the time. I mean, Ewan McCall was an awful male dominator um, for everybody. You know, he's, he just had his set of rules. And I didn't like him and I didn't like his singing um, and I didn't like his attitude. And, I mean, what was nice about being me was that I was able to just be alone. I, I wasn't sort of... You know, fixed in with anybody. I, I didn't have a group to tell me, you no, know, to call me to heal or anything. I was just able to sort of do what I wanted, and not be part of this. I was. I've always felt a bit outside it. Excuse me. Even now, you know, I, I'm not sort of in the thick of things. I'm just at the side, and that's how I like it because then I can be what I want to be and mm. do what I want to do. Mm. You're listening to Don't Assume with me, Zakia, and Shirley Collins. I want to hear about your your kind of infamous trip to the American. Not infamous. <laughs> <laughs> famous. <laughs> nothing. Well, nothing bad happened. Oh no, no, nothing like that. I mean, just because I hear about it and I think, oh, I wish I could have done that. Um, okay, famous. <laughs> You're legendary. Yeah. So, <laughs> Um, so, so I want to I want to hear about your 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 legendary trip to the American South uh, with Alan Lomax, and you know you met some incredible characters, mm. Muddy Waters, Fred McDowell. You know it's a kind of a trip of dreams, really, for for a music lover. Um, what are some of your most vivid memories of that of that time of that adventure? Well, I suppose the most incredible was the first time hearing Fred McDowell play. And it, we had been sort of in this setting, in this in this sort of small community that was way up from the, the bottom of Mississippi, up in the hills, and it was quite isolated. And we recorded, I mean, so many people there who were singing, I mean, really old stuff. And 
the African dance that one, the, the snake dance, the serpent dance that Lonnie and Ed Young did. They just played whistle, a very rough little cane whistle, drumming, and Ed just danced and wound himself down to the bottom of the ground, um, patted his hand on the dust, and then the women around came and patted their hand on the dust, and then he unwound again. I mean, it gives me goosebumps now to talk about it. And when I looked at Alan, you know, he was just in awe of what we'd seen. He said later it was like watching Pan dance. And it was that that magical. And they told us that um, there was a blues player that lived close by that we ought to go and see. And I thought, no, I don't want a modern blues player. You know, I just don't want this spell broken. So, But we went along and... Um, in in the clearing, there were two or three sort of very tumble-down shacks and women were sitting there and children was, were playing around and hens were scratching around. And in the clearing, out of the wood, appeared this very slight figure carrying a guitar and that was Fred. And he'd just been picking cotton all day and this was the first opportunity he'd had to get there. And he started to play and... I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking about that now, that moment when you first heard the power and the shimmer, the metallic sound of his guitar and then the voice. You know, you knew you were there in the presence of a really great musician who was being recorded for the first time and you thought, how could we be so lucky? And how could Fred be so lucky? Because, as Alan said later... He thought his fortune had been made. He'd, he'd finally been found, um, you know. So a cotton picker part of the time, but no longer just a labourer, but now a recognised, or later a recognised musician. Even the Rolling Stones loved him and cop- copied him a bit and bought him a silver lame suit, <laughs> which they say he was buried in. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that was an amazing discovery. It was almost like discovering somebody like um, Muddy Waters all over again, you know. it was. It, I think it was that important. Yeah, I mean, gosh, how fortunate, how lucky I was to be there, you know. Discovery of Fred McDowell. You know? <laughs> and, um, but I also remember how tough it had been in Mississippi, how racist it was. And when we left, after we'd been there about five days, and I'd got very friendly with his wife, Annie May, and I kissed her goodbye on the cheek, and everybody felt fell silent. And I thought I'd done something wrong. And I said to Alan, you know, what, what did I do? He said, I think that was the first time they'd seen a white woman kiss a black one, mm-hmm. you know. And something as simple as that, it made, it made such a difference to to sort of how I started to think about things. And I have to confess that we swam in segregated pools and we ate in segregated restaurants because you had to, because there was nothing else, you know. But the shame of that sort of sits with me still. Mm. But um, that was a wonderful community of people. And some of the songs that... um, the older musicians played went right back to Africa, you know, you could the drumming, the the sounds, the old banjo, you know, it wasn't a tuned 
American white banjo. It was a it was a black African banjo, and it just sounded wonderful, especially in the Mississippi night, which was so dark, you know, and you could just feel everything was elemental. There were lovely people there. Well, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm sort of been sucked into your memory world there for a second. Um, the music that you encountered there, did, did you feel like it chimed in any way with the sort of English folk song that you knew so well, or did it differ? I mean, what you're talking about, this, like, this sense of history and the sense of being carried back. Well, there were two sorts of history, of course. There was black history, there was the African history, and then there was the white history, but they all existed in different places, of course. I mean, in... Arkansas, for instance, it was nothing but but ballads, a lot of which I knew from home. And they were fascinated, the singers, to hear me sing my English versions. Um, And they they all knew they'd come from what they called the old country, but um, hadn't realised that we still sang them. They thought they'd just preserved their... And, uh, I mean, that that was wonderful as well, just to experience all that and to feel the thrill of it all um, and the, the best singer there and all old voices you know which I love anyway I mean I've never ever worried about that because my granddad had an old voice you know and it just felt right in my heart um, but Almeida Riddle she's the one song she sang that I have recorded I recorded on on um, Heart's Ease um, she sang a ballad called The Merry Golden Tree, which is a ballad basically about treachery on the high seas. Um, and it's an, a British ballad that, that I knew from home as well. But when Almeida sang the chorus, she sang, it, it went, on the sailing on the low and lowland low, sailing on the lonely lowland sea. She summed up the whole picture of a vast ocean. She'd never seen the sea in her life. But she could... And again, I've got goosebumps. The way she could sing this song and, and bring this whole image in front of you. It's, it's quite extraordinary how things like that do happen. I mean, it doesn't happen with every song, of course, but when it does, it's so powerful. And you realise, again, the power of the songs, you know, that have existed for so long anyway, for hundreds of years, many of them. And they still have that power to enchant you and, and thrill you and move you. It's just wonderful. Absolutely. And you, you've, you've talked about... You know, a lot of these songs are dealing with quite difficult subject mm. matter. Some, some of them are really, are really dark. Um, what's the, what's the most sort of scandalous story that you've encountered in a in a folk song? Scandalous. I'm not sure. I mean, the one that's come to mind. It's not exactly scandalous, but it's quite terrifying is a song called The Oxford Girl. Now, that went to America as well, where it mostly became known as The Knoxville Girl um, over the years. But The Oxford Girl goes out for a walk with her sweetheart, and they're walking along the river, and suddenly he takes a stick from the hedge and kills her, batters her to death, and throws her in the river. And then says, you know, he regrets having done it. 
Look how she go, look how she floats. She's drowning in the stream, and instead of her having a watery grave, she should have been my bride. And so the surprise of this when it happens, and some people really don't like to hear the song, but I was absolutely fascinated by it. And it's so dark. Why would you choose to pass it on? I mean, I passed it on because I recorded it, because I thought it was absolutely wonderful. What's the power in it? Why would you sing it? It's a bad song. And yet, gypsies sang it a lot. It was recorded several times from English gypsies. See, the thing within a folk song, you can sing about anything and everything. It all It's all there. You know, it's not sort of life cleaned up a bit. It's, it's sort of proper life. Oh, dear. And um, what... Why is it so wonderful? I don't like Benjamin Britten at all or his music and him and his partner singing The Foggy Dew is one of the worst experiences one can have, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, it, it just... Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm not cross about it anymore because I've been cross about it for so long, it's no point. But he collected a song from a man called George Goodthorpe who lived in the workhouse in Brig in Lincolnshire. And it was a song that probably dated back at least 400 years. I've never heard it before or since. I've never heard anybody sing it, never seen it in print. And it's about, it's called Six Dukes. And they go down to the beach and they find corpse. And they recognise this corpse as the Royal Duke of Lincoln, of Grantham. They take his body up to London where it's embalmed and covered with roses. Then they take him back to Lincoln, where he was born. And the verse says, as they carry him along, so so white were the flamboys, so yellow were the wands, so black was their mourning as they carried him along. And it's just just a medieval, you know, it's, it's ancient words that we don't use anymore. And the last verse says, he now lies in cold coffin, he now lies in cold clay, and the royal queen of Grantham went weeping away. It's, I still got goosebumps with that one, you see. I mean, the whole mystery of it, who is he really, you know? Why are they giving him all this honour by burying him so, so specially? And then his wife just... I can just visualise her just turning away from the grave. It breaks my heart for her, you know. And and that came from a farm labourer who was in a workhouse in 1901. You know, you couldn't make it up. And I think there's something about the fact that uh, probably up until that point, these things hadn't really been written down. They were Oh, never carried. written down, yeah. no. Um, and th- there was one of the... the Difficulties with the early collectors, people like Vaughan Williams and Cecil Sharp, is that they didn't have recording equipment, of course. They had to write everything down. So that you... I mean, I think Vaughan Williams particularly tried to get the nuances of the tune and how the tune could vary from verse to verse. But on the whole, you don't... You just get one point in time of how that was sung. Whereas with the recording, of course, you know, it it, it can vary. If you get a singer singing it more than once, they sing it differently slightly differently both times but the fact that they had to 
write down the, the things initially. I mean, that must have been such a labour of love because that would take some time. And the patient singer would probably have to sing it <laughs> more than once to make <laughs> sure they got all the words. And <laughs> but as you say, it kind of, it does, it, it sort of flattens them in a way and sort of squashes them and fixes well, them in does. a moment. Yes, it, it, it does, um, which is is not the best, but, it, I mean, at least they're they're taken down. They're there for us to, you know, because some of those wouldn't be known now. I mean, we just owe them such a lot. It's easy to scoff people like Cecil Sharp. I know people can do, you know, because they think of him as a sort of antiquarian who just wanted to make folk songs for schools. But the fact that they recorded, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of songs, literally. And, you know, thank God they did. So how did you meet David Tibet and how did that encounter inspire you to start singing again after some time away? Well, after a very long layoff, really, um, due to the fact that I couldn't sing because I got dysphonia and... Every time I opened my mouth to try and sing, I was just so terrified. But And I was working at the job centre. I got a job at the job centre in Brighton. And I had a phone call one day from a chap calling himself David Tibet. And he said, I really like your old albums. Can I come and talk to you about them? So I agreed. And he turned up with a couple of friends. And he, he was very sweet, very slight, very keen. And he said, you are one of my two favourite singers I thought, oh, how lovely. I said, who's the other one? He said, Tiny Tim. <laughs> I thought, this is just a bit odd. How do I take this? But, um, no, it turned out that he, he was, was just... I, I mean, I don't know quite what he sees in me, but it, he he sees something um, that he finds unique, I think. Um, and he kept trying to encourage me to sing. And I did sing... I tried to record a, a verse of a hymn for him on one of his albums and a lullaby, part of a lullaby, but it, I, it was just so embarrassing and it just terrified me, the sound of my voice then. I couldn't bear it. It was actually over the years, um, you know, we, we kept a friendship because I really liked him. He was very sweet and just such a unique sort of character. And then finally one day he said, I've got a, I'm giving a concert at the... Union Chapel in London, why didn't you just come along and sing one or two songs? And I said, oh, I was so cross being asked over and over again. All right, then I'll do it this time, I will. And I did. Because <laughs> once I'd said I would to David, I had to honour it. Um, so Ian Keary, who I still work with on the albums and the concerts, even now, we rehearsed a couple of songs got a lovely ovation when I walked out. Um, it was so, so friendly and I thought I'd been forgotten. And I sang one lullaby, the American lullaby, all the pretty little horses that David requested. And then I sang Death and the Lady, which is a great English song about a woman encountering death. This is great. <laughs> and it was very moody and Ian made a wonder, played one for slide guitar behind it. and uh, And that was the start of it again. But as we left, Ian said to me, I think we got away with it. And I think we did. <laughs> <laughs> but it did. It was the start of, of my renewal. So I have so much to thank David for, you know, and we're still good friends. So your, your album, Lotus Star, 
was the first full-length album that you'd done after 38 years. Is that right? Gosh, yes. How did it feel tackling an album like that after after <laughs> leaving it so long? Well, Domino were wonderful, of course. They allowed me to, at my request, record it at home in this cottage. Oh, um, it was recorded yeah, here? Yes, oh, wow. yeah. And... Um, we had all the time in the world to do it. And, of course, we made quite a few mistakes going through. But we chose some, I think, great songs that we wanted to do. But I had to do things over and over and over again. I mean, partly because my voice, I just couldn't bear the sound of it so often. And partly because, you know, kids came down on skateboards and things and <laughs> the trains rumbled past and we had to sort of do stuff again. Or if I sang a ballad about, um, one of the long ballads about, a woman who was called Sally. I'd, I'd sort of get confused and call her Polly halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was lovely doing it at home because we, you know, we had as much time as we needed. And there was one, I mean, one song, Cruel Lincoln on it, which is, again, a, a very, very old ballad, and one of the dark ones about a mason who hasn't been paid for the work he's done and he's angry. And he's out for revenge and he just comes and slaughters the whole family. So while this was going on with the wonderful sonorous sounds of hurdy-gurdy and some great organ pipes that Ossian Brown found and was just blowing gently into it and English long pipes, all this wonderful dark music, we got the kitchen window open and birdsong was flooding in and we left it on the recording because it sounded so wonderfully, inappropriately appropriate you know? <laughs> um, and and just the lovely days like that when, when something sort of quite wonderful happens so I wasn't terribly happy with my singing on the album, it sounded a bit um, tentative but at least I'd done it, you know and um, it wasn't that bad after all <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know about your, your selection process when it, when it came to that record and, and, your, and your new one you know, it's quite a different approach to, you know, a, a more conventional musician who you know goes to the studio to write and record, you know, and they're making up songs or maybe it's songs that they wrote a few years ago yeah. or whatever. You've got this sort of, you know, 400-year back catalogue of songs to choose from. How do you make your selections for each record? It sounds a bit silly, but they just come through. You know, some it, they sort of trickling into my mind that that's what I want to do and in f I mean in fact on the new album I have sort of um, chosen two or three songs that I have done before but just because I think this may well be my last album I can't see how I can keep going after this one <laughs> touch wood <laughs> no I, I mean I do I do think it is um, Domino have been absolutely wonderful but I think three of three sounds good it's okay if you can say this is an octogenarian singer making her... Th but if you go on to say this is a nonagenarian singer, that just sounds <laughs> a bit past it, doesn't it? <laughs> so I think this will be the last one. But as I say, one or two songs I wanted to revisit and I wanted Grandad's song on there, The Bonnie Labouring Boy. So I put that on just to, just to make sure Grandad was still there. And, I mean, the, the pleasure of all of this is that I've worked with such lovely musicians, you know, the, the Lodestar Band. They're, they're just fabulous musicians. They know what I want. You know, they, they, they just know what's right. And, uh, and they're such lovely people to get on with, you know, no, 
no slip-ups, no pretentious nonsense. You know, they just play and we all love each other and it's been it's been a miracle, really, that I'd managed to do it all again and it's been absolutely wonderful. I've always been quite drawn mm. to, to English folk music and folk culture in general because, especially as someone with Caribbean roots, as someone who's sort of, like, got the family connection to empire, mm. um, this music feels like it offers a very different version of Englishness of, of, and of English history than ones covered, um, conjured by other national stories and symbols that sort of bombastic and do the monarchy and the empire and all, and all of that. But this tells a real story. This, these songs tell the true story of it, you know, from the point of view of the people who lived through it or died through it. Anyway, so I interrupted well, you there. That, yeah, just that. What, yeah, what, what role do you think that, that this music has for us in the present day and, and can it sort of refresh uh, or replenish or sort of rewrite our sense of national identity or, or our national story? I do wonder these days, do we need a national identity? I mean, I know I do. I, I love the thought of being English, but it's my version of being English, you know. It's, it's not the one we're taught in school. And uh, I mean, nationalism is a dangerous thing. I'm I'm quite happy. I mean, I'm quite happy to acknowledge that I love being English, I'm, and in many ways, I'm proud of being English. But I'm proud of being English because of what I know about genuine English people who've lived through this and and not been acknowledged. You know, they haven't been recognised. They've just been slaughtered and cheated and lied to as they still are <laughs> um, but I love England I love the thought of England but my England my granddad's England I mean he he took his mum, mum told me that when granddad they had five children grand and granddad and as newborns he took them outside to see the sky and the stars and the moon and the trees because he loved nature and he loved being in the country he loved his his life in the country and i thought what a lovely start for a baby to just be held up to see this <laughs> everything around you and to you know to know that it was there all the time yeah i i mean i i th i feel like what you're talking about it makes me think of well when you hear these alternative stories when you hear these stories as you say of English people over the centuries who have been subject to the same oppressions as maybe people across the globe not so dreadfully though not so not so dreadfully but there is a connection there surely is yes and I think that's that I think that's what for me gives me hope it's sort of like well there is a shared experience here it's not all about the people who are you know the powerful people who went out and then oppressed lots of other people. There are these other stories that perhaps if people knew more about, we might recognise the sort of the 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 what is shared as opposed mm. to this sort of all of the all of the tension and conflict. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. What's lovely about these these songs is that yeah, they're sort of they're not about a whole country. They're about local people who experience things in specific places. Yeah. And what's also wonderful, though, um, when you get to be non-specific, is that 
the gypsies were great singers of songs. I mean, there's this double CD or treble CD I made of um, of gypsy singers that had been recorded mostly in Sussex and Surrey and Kent. So they were travelling around. They were listening to songs that they could hear in the pubs or around the campfire uh, or at hot picking time when everybody would be there, the locals as well, and the Londoners as well as the gypsies. And so that songs were learned and songs were passed on as well. And this was right across those counties so that you get gypsies singing virtually every song that the local people sang because they just picked them up and moved them on and then took them with them and then other people learned them. It was a wonderful thing. And the gypsy singing is just so utterly fabulous. And it points out a thing as well that... You learn a song by listening to somebody sing it. You don't sort of learn it by music and words on the printed page. And it, the story of Peter Kennedy, who was recording Queen Caroline Hughes, the king, Queen of the Gypsies in Dorset, her husband sang a song to Peter that Peter hadn't heard before about a boy who was stolen from as a baby from his family. But years later, his mother recognised him as a chimney sweep because he had a certain birthmark on his arm, and so she got him back. And Peter said, I've never heard this song before. He said, where did you learn it? And John said, well, I learned it from an old shepherd at a hiring fair. And Peter said, yes, but how did you learn it? And John said, I heard what he sung. And that was that. that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you sounded so baffled as to why you'd be asked the question. I I heard what he sang. What more do you want to know? (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Quite a different approach to the Vaughan Williamses and the Cecil Sharps and the rest. Yeah. Um, So just sort of bringing it again back to the sort of the, the here and now or almost. I saw you perform at, um, at the Barbican just after the lockdowns and it was um, probably the first gig that I'd been to after that period and it, it was incredibly moving I think not only because it was the sort of freedom after that sort of that period but also this sense of communal listening and these stories you know this this is really it was an evening of storytelling as as, as much as it was an evening of, of music and, and it felt like there was a certain gravitas in these songs coming from you, um, you know, as a as an elder, as someone who has lived a long life and and accumulated all of this experience, and then sort of channeling that through these ancient songs. And it made me think, you know, this is this makes sense. It's it's actually elders who should be singing these songs. Um, do you feel like it's sort of? Do you feel like you're able to give more to the to this music perhaps now than when you were um, younger and less experienced? Well, yes, I guess I, I guess I do. I think, but surely that applies to everyone, doesn't it? As they grow older, they've got more experience; they're able to share better. What I think I'm able to communicate to people, at least I hope I do, is how utterly wonderful these songs are and the debt that we owe to. Ordinary people, you know, this is what's so wonderful about it all. It's just ordinary people, but in their way, extraordinary people who who sang these songs before us. And I just want people to know about them and to know the worth of of their their forebears, really, rather than... I don't know, I just feel music is so superficial now. That, but that's me, that's being an old person talking. You know, you would 
you wouldn't want to embrace half of what modern music throws at you, I don't think. But um, because storytelling has always been an important part of culture, but not so much now because we are bombarded with, just bombarded with loud music. Are there any songs that you sort of find yourself (coughs) returning to again and again? Or that you have that you have returned to again and again throughout your 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 life. Well, yes, um, but I haven't managed to record them all again yet, and I don't think I'll get you know the the opportunity is past now. But what I do do is sing songs in bed at night. I mean, not out loud. I sing them to myself. Just go through all the songs I love, and and I can hear the arrangements behind them. I can hear Dolly's arrangements on, for instance, "The Blacksmith Courted Me," which is one of my favourite songs and one of the favourite Gypsy songs as well. Um, I can just hear everything I ever recorded, really. But I don't go through them all because some of them not worth going through. But yeah, I mean, you, you just do come back because the songs don't lose their power over you, you know. You just want to re-sing them, re-release them, let people know what wonderful stuff there is to be sung still, if only they've got the wit to, to find it. And the best way to do that, truly, is to listen to the field recordings, to listen to the old voices, not mind them, because there's such a truth in the way they can, they sing them. I was just fortunate to start off with hearing the song sung by a beloved old voice, you know, and that feeling just stayed with me forever. The culture of this country is enormous, but mostly unknown, you know, because just because I suppose in the past it's been middle-class and upper-class people who've made the music... Although in many ways, of course, it's not quite fair either because Vaughan Williams, you know, reproduces some of the melodies um, of the songs in his orchestral pieces and and they're wonderful. And George Butterworth too. I mean, there's, there's just one or two composers who seem to know the value of the old songs as well and will use them. What more can I say? It's the part... <laughs> Gotta say, power to the people, but I don't. Yes, power to the people. Fits up. <laughs> if only, if only the people would recognise it. This is where it all falls down. Nobody really cares about this stuff. Are you worried about the future of folk music? Do you? What do you feel about the sort of new generation of folk singers? And and well, if you had a message from them from your generation carrying through, what would it be? Don't mess about with it. Just sing it straight. <laughs> I mean, I mean that too. One wonderful voice that's come through now, of course, and that is Rady Pete of Lancome. You know, she sings so be- so properly. I mean, you know, the songs just come straight out of her. No, no messing around, you know. They're just direct and absolutely stunning. So there's hope. So lovely, yeah. Very, just, yeah, very inspiring. Thank you. Thanks, oh, thank for, you. thanks for all that, that means... you've given us. No, darling, thank you for thinking to come and do this. That's wonderful. Yeah, pleasure. Oh, I feel a bit emotional. <laughs> oh, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> we better have cake. Oh, yes, quick. Thanks for listening to Don't Assume. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can like and subscribe on your podcast app. This is an NTS podcast produced by Lizzie King and recorded and edited by Sam Stone.
This podcast was made possible thanks to NTS supporters. Become a supporter today for access to additional podcast content, live track lists, access to a supporter-only Discord and newsletter, and a shop discount. 50% of supporter proceeds go direct to NTS resident DJs. Find out more at nts.live supporters. Yes.